invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. It will be up on the screen uh, if you need it. But if you have your Bibles, you could follow me along and we'll begin reading there in, in just a moment. In the Isaiah Christmas uh, season and Advent, I want you to see, as I've said each week, the glory of the gospel that has been prophesied in the Old Testament through the mystery of God becoming man. We started a, a few weeks ago in Isaiah chapter 7 where we looked at the prophecy of, of the sign that is given. A sign will be given to you that a, a virgin will conceive and bear a son and you shall call him Emmanuel. And we unpacked the doctrine of the virgin birth or the virgin conception, the necessity of it and the sufficiency of God's word to teach us about it from Isaiah chapter 7 as well as from Matthew chapter 1 where Matthew quotes it. And last week we were in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 9 where we see this glorious messianic text that foreshadows the kind of savior that we needed, the kind of messiah that we that we needed and he has given, the Messiah that we have received. He is the light that is shown to those who are in darkness. He has freed us from the sin that has oppressed us and one day will free us from this life of sin. He is worthy of our worship because he is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace and the one who carries the government upon his shoulders what an awesome text and what awesome hope that it sets for us not only this christmas but next year as we coming into this next year and living in this fallen world this morning we're going to look at just a few chapters over isaiah chapter 11 and i want to tell you that if you uh, I've been with us the last couple weeks that the, the biblical and historical context of Isaiah still applies here in chapter 11. That in the midst of great judgment that is about to come because of the sin of the nation of Israel and of Judah and of Assyria, that the Lord God is going to humble them and bring about judgment upon them. And particularly, he's going to use Assyria, the wicked nation of Assyria, to do so. But mixed within these, this narrative, this, or it's not a narrative, but mixed within these prophecies that we know that's coming because of the narrative and the things that's happening as God fulfills, mixed within these things, this destruction and judgment, is we see Messianic hope, this Messiah, this anointed one that is going to come. And chapter 11 is another one of those. So let's look to chapter 11 now, and let's begin reading together, starting in verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be 
in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the shepherd shall lay down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together and the lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra and weaned children shall put his hand to the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, and inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Every four years in America, we as citizens get to vote in a presidential election. And being that it's December of 2023, as many of you know, we are already in a full swing of, of election season. And what a wonderfully joyous time it is. When I was young, I, I don't remember presidential elections sucking so much air out of the culture. So much time, so much energy from people. Elections, of course, were, were important, but they were not consuming like they are now. They consume us. 2000s, and this is going to date me, 2000s was the first presidential election that I was allowed to vote in. And since um, was the, our presidential election, I was allowed to vote in. And since 9-11, I believe that reason why it's been sucking so much air out of the room is I think since 9-11, the executive branch has gobbled up so much authority and so much power through executive orders and regulatory agencies that it has made that branch way more important and worse and intrusive in our daily lives. And frankly, I to believe to be unconstitutional with almost very little, with very little checks and balances. But now, until November 2024, we are going to hear candidates make all kinds of promises to gain or to buy votes, to appease their base. But history has shown us time and time again that politicians will always be politicians and they will break those promises. Woodrow Wilson probably promised the American people in 1916, that if elected, he would keep the U.S. out of the great war brewing in Europe. But in 1917, the newly inaugurated president declared war on Germany. In 1928, Herbert Hoover pledged an end to poverty in America with the slogan, campaign slogan, that there would be a chicken in every pot and a garage in every car. 
But in 1929, the stock market crashed and America fell into an economic depression which saw unemployment rates up to 25%. Can you imagine that? 25% of the country, jobless. In 1932, with the depression still going on, Franklin Roosevelt was elected. and He was elected based upon the promise, listen to this, based upon the promise to do two things to decrease government spending by 25%. We can't even get 5%. And to balance the budget. That has not happened in eons, it feels like, it seems like. Two things, it's overspending and an unbalanced budget that continue to prolong the depression and make it worse and worse. Well, guess what, he did neither. He didn't balance the budget, nor did he cut spending, which prolonged the Great Depression until World War II, which, by the way, he also promised not to get involved in as well. And then in 1990, George H.W. Bush, running for office, made the pledge, no new taxes. But in 1990, he compromised. He compromised with Democrats who raised taxes, and he lost his second term. And recently, most recently, we see that President Biden ran on the promise to bring normalcy and unity back to our country, and also the promise to bring stability around the world. And that has been anything but any of those things, has it? Due to his terrible part of weak American foreign policy, as well as weaponizing government agencies against opponents to push his agenda and alienates most Americans, to say the least. Now, I bring all this up not to bring politics into this day or not to discourage you, but the point is this, is that throughout history, people have sought to bring about a perfect society with a perfect government with so-called perfect leaders to rule them. The human heart has an innate desire for life and for things to get better, not only for ourselves, but also for our families. And when the next slick politician comes along and people are duped, I believe, to believe their promises and their new visions to make life better, it sounds good to them. It sounds good to them. And brothers and sisters, I tell you this this morning not only to remind you to do not put your hope or trust in men or governments, and I do not tell you that to disconnect from culture, but to be faithful citizens as scriptures tell us to do, but to say to this that our advent, our coming, the coming of our Messiah is our only one and true hope. The hope by which we celebrate this Christmas, that we gaze upon even this Christmas Eve, is is far greater than what our celebrations and our traditions and our our decorations can even come close to project. And yet we read very clearly in God's word from Isaiah chapter 11 
of the glorious hope of the kingdom that is to come. But even more than the gloriousness of the kingdom, but the glory of the king who will reign. And as we read in Isaiah 9, the one who will have all the governments upon their shoulders, and it will far exceed all of the governmental promises ever given in history. Christmas is the advent of the King of Kings, the inaugurating of his kingdom. Jesus has a kingly office, and Isaiah chapter 11 is about the coming of this Messiah King. It tells of his character, it tells of his lineage, it tells of his dominion and his desire and the kind of kingdom that he will have. And it is an absolute stark contrast to what we have ever seen led by men. And it applies to us in two ways this morning. Number one, I hope that it inspires us in knowing the kind of king we serve and what we have to look forward to in his kingdom. And two, it is also to serve as a warning to us to not find rest, satisfaction, peace, or hope in anything in this world apart from him alone. And so first I want us to look at the humble beginnings of our king. The humble beginnings of our king in, in verse 1. To understand verse 1, we have to look back again to the, to the context of what Isaiah has been saying since chapter 9. Right? Since chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, a son is given. But the, the rest of chapter 9, Isaiah is describing how the Lord God is going to use this wicked nation, the Assyrians, to come and judge his people. And the language is so strong in, in Isaiah chapter 9 that it, it harkens back to what we've been studying in Exodus, where it says in Exodus that the Lord will, will outstretch his arm against the Egyptians. But Isaiah is saying that the Lord God is now going to outstretch his arm toward, toward his own people there in verse 12. He will take away their leaders and their prophets. The people will be consumed by the fires of their own wickedness. And after they consume one another, one another, yet the anger of the Lord is still not turned away. He will still continue to outstretch his arm against them, verse 21. And then in chapter 10, we hear why. We hear of their injustice. We hear of their oppression, the injustice and the impression of oppression of them upon their own people to rob the poor of their rights, to rob widows of their resources, to prey on the fatherless. But then the attention turns toward Assyria and how God is going to use Assyria, this wicked nation, to judge his people. In fact, God calls the Assyrians the rod of his anger, the rod of his anger. Because he's going to send them against them, against the people who have angered him. But the perspective of Assyria, I love the text because it really explains to us that Assyria, they're just doing what they want, though. They're doing because they want to destroy. They want to take their plunder for their own desires and their own strength and own wisdom to grow their own kingdom. It's what they want. It's what they are going to do. 
But in verse 15, the Lord shows us his sovereign hand over the nations. It's such an awesome verse. It says, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the might or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if the rod should wield him or who lifts it? Or the staff who who should lift it who is not wood? And the whole point of this is the sovereign hand of God, that it is God who is wielding the axe or using the the saw or the the rod. And then those things will not come and, and wield them and tell the one who is wielding them what to do, but it is the master who does so. He is the one who rules the nations. He is the one who rules and judges over his own people. Assyria, you're just the rod. And you will do what I will. Assyria, like all nations, brothers and sisters, again, the perspective that Isaiah will tell us even in a greater way in Isaiah chapter 40 through 42 is that the nations are a tool in the hand of the Lord. In verse 17, it says that the holy fire will devour them in one day like a dry forest. And so there's this image that's being built now of a forest and the judgment that will come upon this this forest of of being burnt out and cleared down. Verse 19, you you wouldn't send a child into the forest alone, but after the Lord gets done with it, there will be nothing left where even a child can go into the forest and count the trees. And then he goes on to promise that a remnant will return. And though it's going to get pretty bad. But we come to verse 33 and 34, the end of chapter 10, and he uses this same imagery of the devastation of the forest and fire and burning and axes and saws and rods. And he says this in verses 33 and 34. He says, Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs in terrifying power. So remember, right, the acts of verse 15, the lopping of the boughs of the trees, and great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. So again, here's the picture, that God is going to lay the axe to this forest, the forest of his people, and also Assyria. And that forest is going to be riddled then with nothing left but devastation and stumps all around. You've seen when tree companies, they come through and they harvest the trees in the area. They harvest all the pines around here. Once was a full and lush forest of pines, and you can almost get lost through there. And then when they come through, it looks like absolute devastation. And all of a sudden, you can see clear across the other side of the property like you never could before. And the irony here is that the forest, the forest that Ahaz was relying on, is the one that God was going to lay to waste. God was going to clear cut them. And the object lesson here is very clear. The picture for us, brothers and sisters, is very clear. Assyria, the world, will never, ever, 
ever, should I say it again? Do I need to be more encompassing than saying ever, 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 ever more than will never be your salvation? The world, Assyria, as impressive as it is at times, will never save you. Will always lead to destruction and judgment. And so here's this total devastation, this clear-cut force, right? You get the picture. You've all seen it. Or all of a sudden you drive by a road you haven't been to in a couple months, and then all of a sudden this, the woods are just gone, right? And you're like, whoa. My goodness, man, what a mess. Look at that. Look at all the stuff. It's just crazy. Right? You get that's the picture that's being sent. You're standing on the edge of this absolute devastation. And as Isaiah is seeing this picture and has this picture before him, he sees something in the midst of it. This little glimmer of hope amidst this grim reality of darkness and death and destruction that God has brought, this judgment that God has brought, this glimmer of hope that shines, and here comes verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So looking down at the slashed down forest, Judah, where is your hope? Where is it now? Where is Assyria? Where's Israel? Where is your hope? There are nothing but thousands and thousands of stumps all around. But there is one little shoot springing up from one stump. Isaiah says, there's your hope. There's your hope. Out of nothing, total destruction. He says, there still will be hope that will come out of the line of David. Not Ahaz. Things are going to get way worse before they get better. And it will even look like this promise cannot come true. That it's almost impossible for this promise to come true because as far as they know, the Davidic line was completely cut off. It did not go well for the last king of Judah. As he stood there watching his children murdered in front of him, and then his eyes plucked out and dragged into Babylon to die. The line of David was being cut off. The seed of the serpent was having his way. But as Isaiah gives us this vision, that from that dead stump, a little shoot will grow. And that shoot will become a branch. And that branch will bear much fruit. And I think Isaiah is clearly already thinking of chapter 7, verse 14, and chapter 9, 1 through 7. That a child will be born, will be conceived of a virgin. The light will shine to those who dwell in darkness. And 600 years later, the little shoot will spring forth. Out of the stump of Jesse... And he will have no status. He will just be a shoot from a stump. He will have a lineage of a failed dynasty. The great surprise of Christmas is that our help, our Savior, our King has come to us from the most unexpected way. 
And this isn't the kind of story that anyone would come up with. The king of kings being born of nothing, being described as a small shoot that springs up from a dead tree, to be born of, in the most humbling of ways, to nobodies. And yet when you read the gospel story of the incarnation of the Son of God, he was born in the most scandalous of ways. That the King of Kings would be born in a stable, lied in a manger, wrapped in swaddling cloths in a town of Bethlehem, And the first of those who come worship him were the least of these, the shepherds. It would seem as if the Lord missed a detail even in the planning. I mean, shouldn't have someone, shouldn't have someone uh, had a little bit more forethought to make reservations at the end? But Isaiah tells us the humble beginnings is the plan of the sovereign God. And brothers and sisters, I have to tell you that this is good for us to hear. This is good in which the, this is the means by which God had planned the Son of God to come. There's something wonderful for us to gain from this because how our Lord, the Lord our God, delights in pointing us to hope. And he points us to hope in something that does not look impressive to the world. Bethlehem is unimpressive. Joseph and Mary are unimpressive. A manger is not exactly the top hospital in the area. Again, what kind of king is born in a stable? You see, the the world wants, the world craves, the world legitimizes that which is impressive. What looks impressive to the world, however, as we are seeing from the scriptures, and particularly from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, is that our hope is not impressive before the world. You remember what was impressive to Ahaz? It was Assyria. He turned to Assyria, not to the Lord. The Lord God gave him the word, sent his prophet, and even said, I will give you any sign that you want. All you got to do is ask. And he was more impressed with Assyria, than the Lord God. And that's the world. That's the the, the heart of, of, of man that we are impressed with the impressive things of the world. Our hope, though, is a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Conceived by a virgin, born in Bethlehem, lived a sinless life, delivered and died on the cross, and yet rose from the dead. Brothers and sisters, to our world, our message, our gospel is is unimpressive. But to those who are being saved, it is the glory of God. And even with that unimpressive message to the world, it is still confounding the world, isn't it? They are perplexed by it. They don't know what to do with it. And to the world, the gospel is unimpressive. 
And there's a lesson to be learned here. Is we don't have to make it impressive. Oh, how churches are caught in those trappings. To, to, make, the, to make our message, to make the gospel impressive is how we are going to draw people in. But we forget the truth by which we, that which we win people by is the only way in which we will keep them. We gather on Sundays, we sing, we preach the word of God, we listen to the preaching of the word of God, and we fellowship as the church and as to the world, that is unimpressive. In fact, it's crazy. They would think that it's such a waste of time. You could be sleeping in, you could be watching sports or preparing to watch sports for the rest of the day, you can go on a trip, you can go on a hike, you can ride a bike, you can do whatever else Dr. Seuss would say. You can do all those things. You can spend time with family, even noble things, the spending time with family. But the Lord God has told us that the means and strategy of the Lord and for his kingdom to be built and to go forth in this world is to take what is unimpressive to the world and to proclaim it every week. The Son of God and the Christmas story, the gospel, the church to save the world has come. Our King, our Messiah, who has come with the most humble beginnings, has come to the glory of God. And second, we see the divine power of our King in verses 2 through 3. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And when the Lord gave his people was the king, right? When the Lord gave his people his king, they gave him, he gave him King Saul. And Saul was anointed to be king. And that king was anointed outwardly with oil. And difference from several other kings, he was anointed with oil, not, with, not just given a crown. He wasn't crowned king, he was anointed king. And kings were to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that becomes very clear in the stories of Saul and David and Solomon. But what's clear from Solomon and David and, and, and Saul and, is that these good kings, sometimes good, the good kings of Israel and, and Judah, is that none of them finished their race well. They all failed. And what we have just said and what we've told in telling the story is that their kingdom was lost. But the stump of a king would come. And through that stump, this, this shoot that would spring forth from the stump of Jesse, he will be anointed with the Spirit of the Lord, will rest upon him. And unlike all other kings, the Spirit of the Lord will be what will guide him. And will guide him in wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and, and most importantly, to, a, to have a fear for the Lord, a delight in the Lord. We can put all the kings, line them all up, even the good ones, right? We just said David and Solomon and Josiah and Hezekiah. We can line them all up. And all of them at times measure in some which way in another with a description of those verses, but never in totality, and especially for the, the, the whole length of their life. And certainly in contrast and in context with this verse, certainly not Ahaz, who wouldn't even listen to God's word, but rather trust 
in what impresses his eyes. He would fear men and not the Lord. And so what's clear again, and if you studied Luke's gospel, what you would see is how the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely the fulfillment of this passage. And not only was he conceived by the Holy Spirit, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He wasn't anointed like other kings with oil, but he was anointed himself with the Spirit of God. And throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he showed us, he showed how he was filled with the Spirit. He showed that he didn't need any of the tools and mechanisms of power to build his kingdom. He didn't need money. He didn't need popularity. He didn't build a military. He didn't create or establish a throne for himself. He didn't gather servants around him to serve him. He came with nothing. He came to be served because he had the spirit of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and a desire to fear the Lord and to glorify his Father. And the only person who was ever truly qualified to rule this world is the one whom we have rejected. We are such fools to resist his authority and rule. How many rulers, kings, presidents, judges, leaders in any form or fashion over the history of mankind has deceived, misled, lied to the downfall to the injury and the pain of hundreds and thousands and even millions, all in the name, listen to me in this, all in the name of making some sort of utopia. History is filled with people who have created mountains of suffering and death. But never has Jesus Christ led his people in that way. For he rules in the fear of the Lord. So think about what it means personally for you. What it means for Jesus to rule over your life with this kind of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might. Doesn't that mean that he cares what's best for you? Doesn't that mean that he always knows what's good, even when it doesn't make sense. Doesn't it mean that he will always do what is best for you and that it is all to the glory of God and as we say around here, for your joy. And third, right along with his divine power, he will rule with righteous justice. You look at verse 3. It says, he will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with his breath of his lips, and he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. 
in faithfulness the belt of his loins. One of the greatest sins that Israel and Judah was and, and, and Judah was guilty of, as we've already said, is how they deprived the poor of their rights and withheld justice and oppressed people. We listed those, they're listed out in chapter 9. And in a fallen world, we understand that this is reality. This is the kind of world that we live in, where people are going to be oppressed, there's going to be injustice, there's going to be wickedness, there's going to be evil. And no matter how much things might get better, right? Technology gets better and medical advances and sciences and the way that we're able to travel and, 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 and the way that we're able to discover things and see things is, is amazing. So but no matter how well things get and how good things get in those ways, we still see man's depravity finding ways to take advantage and hurt and sin against others. No matter what we see, no matter what we do. And man still attempts in their feeble ways to achieve justice. Look how we've seen it in the last few years. And, I like that. In the last few years, how people have tried to achieve justice. No justice, no peace, we will burn your city down. Where is their justice in that? Man still tries to achieve justice. And as blind as we would even, even in our best attempts, as blind as we try to make justice to be, is, it'll never be completely just. And oftentimes what, it is, what our justice is filled with, that it's tainted with favoritism. It's tainted by money and gain and racism, and it's tainted by religious persecution. But we see in the coming of this king, I mean, as a breath of fresh air, we should read these verses, that he does not look on the outside and see the heart, but he sees the hearts of men. He judges with perfect righteousness. A righteousness according to the holiness of God, not a righteousness according to man's standards. And he has come, and when he comes, he will correct all the wrong of the poor. Equity for the meek and judge the earth, so that by his word, the wicked will be killed. And you know, during the earthly ministry of Jesus, we got to... We got a good taste of that. We got a good smell of that. Sort of like, you know, when you get a uh, tomorrow or maybe tonight, this afternoon, you begin to smell the food and the cookies cooking. You know what's coming. That smells good. In the life and ministry of Jesus, we got a really good smell of this kind of righteous justice that's about to come. Jesus feeding the hungry healing the sick, forgiving sinners, denouncing injustice and corruption of the powerful and the elite. He didn't pray on the weak, nor the widows, but he came to their aid, and he provided, and he healed, and he, what did he do? He reversed the curse in many ways. The gospel is giving us a foretaste of what's to come in the perfection when Jesus comes again. 
for justice, for our hope is only in his righteousness and in our righteous judge. It is not in what we can achieve in our man-made courts. Yes, we want justice in, the, in this life, but true justice will never happen. We spent billions of dollars, millions of lives lived on the idea of having a just society. We have judges and lawyers and courts abounding, advocates for people. But even after all of that, it's still hard to find real justice. And the reason is, is because we are not like Christ. We are not righteous. We are not holy like him. We are limited in our knowledge and our power. And we fear man rather than we fear God. Whether it be on the playground or under the oppressive tyrant or a government, people will always side with what's wrong and unjust because they fear someone or upsetting the cultural powers that be. Judges and juries, lawyers are, are just like any of us. They want to fit in. They want to be like. They, they do not want to fear loss and rejection. But this is not the case of Christ who came, who would fear, did not fear man, did not fear what the powers of Kibi could, could do to him. In fact, what he said was the exact opposite. You can do nothing outside of what my father allows you to do. He showed us in his life the kind of righteous king he will be, the kind of righteous judge he will be, the one who fears the Lord and not man. And he will judge with supernatural insight and he will come again and he will bring about the righteous judgment of the Lord. So praise God. And may that truth settle in our souls. In our souls that get so angry. In our souls that can get so upset when we hear of the wicked and evilness of this world. The king knows. And the king is coming, and he will reign in righteousness. And lastly, I love this point. This is my favorite point of all, is that our king will reign in perfect peace. After he comes as a righteous judge, he will bring peace to his people. This is what the world will look like when the king reigns. Look at verse 6. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard shall lay down with the young goat, and the calf with the lion and the fatted calf together. A child will, will lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And lions shall eat the straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. Now, now here is very vivid imagery. Right? Whether it is literal or symbolic, it is a vivid picture that goes against every instinct that we have. I mean, we've seen the episodes on YouTube, right, or, or TV, when animals attack. We know that this is not a good idea. We know that in a fallen world, there is no peace like this. I mean, listen, yeah, if the goat wants to go lay down with the leopard, fine. If the calf and the cow want to go chill with the lion, that's cool. But every basic survival instinct in me says, I'm not going to let my children lead them. 
I'm not going to let my, my child stick their head over a, over a snake hole and see what's in there. That would be insane. But this is the very picture of the kind of harmony and peace that is so foreign to us in this life. And it will come at the reign of Jesus Christ, our King, where all of these hostilities, like this and others, will end. It's an idyllic setting. Apex predators, domesticated, living with prey and the, uh, living with other animals that they usually would just eat. And mankind, without a tinge of fear, or anxiousness to be around them. It would be like going to the zoo with no walls, no, no cages. And in this world, you would never mix these things together. You would never mix these animals intentionally together, especially with our children. But in the coming kingdom peace, it will be as such where wolves will dwell with sheep and they won't eat them. Leopards will lie down with goats and calves and lions with cows, children with snakes. And biblically, I think this is a picture that is about the completion of the restoration of creation in the heavens, the new heavens and the new earth that comes under the righteous reign of Jesus Christ. You look at verse 9, it finishes off by saying that they shall not hurt or destroy in my holy mountain, for the earth shall be the full of the knowledge of God of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The fall has been reversed through the peace that God has created through his son, Jesus Christ. All the hurt that has brought destruction in this life and in this world through these thousands and thousands of years will now be restored in Christ. You know, we can easily look at the Christmas season as a half-glass-empty kind of way. We sing joy to the world and come and adore and peace on earth. And, and these are real high and lofty ideals. And I think that these are the longings of our souls. But Christmas, as we know, half glass empty will come and it will go, and I say that with an asterisk. And we know the reality. We know the reality that there still, there still is no peace. Dangerous animals will still wound and they still will kill. Unspeakable evil and wickedness knows no holidays. Mourning, pain, anger, sickness, and disease. Tears of loss and sadness will still flow. And even now, just hours before Christmas, people will experience death and loss even today. We can think personally, even in our own hearts, of the constant war that's raging in us, in you. The battle of the lust against the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, 
the haunting memories of your failures and your hurts. Those hard things, the things that you have done, the devastation that you have caused through your sin to those whom you love the most, to your family, to your wife, to your children, to your husbands. How my own sin hinders the work of the gospel in my family and in the church. That's looking at the Christmas season at half glass empty. But I think this text is telling us, as well as the gospel, that we are to look at this Christmas season not as half glass empty, but half glass full. As the Apostle Paul encourages us about the grace and forgiveness of God that comes through the gospel, he says even in his own life he had to understand that he is forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Christmas, yes, is the celebration of the advent of our King. The mighty God, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He came to be our perfect atoning sacrifice. From, from cradle to cross to grave, the love of God that has come it was on display. And he is risen. And he reigns. Even now over a raging world. Christmas is a reminder to us, half glass full. There's a reminder to us that you have been forgiven because of the work of that Savior. You have been transformed by the same Spirit that, that anointed Christ. It's the same Spirit that has transformed you and gave you a new heart. And took the scales off of your eyes that you could see the beauty and worth and the loveliness of a Savior. And to repent of your sin and respond by faith and trusting in Him. But the glass is fuller than you may think it was. Because verses 6 through 9 paint a picture of what, that, of what has not been truly fulfilled yet. Yet, see, the gospel brings peace in our hearts. But this is painting a picture, not only the peace for our hearts, but the peace that will come to this world. When our king comes again, to listen, verse 9, where they will not hurt or destroy anymore. Now let that just have a deep impact on your soul. Where they will not destroy or hurt anymore. No more sin. No more weak flesh. No more temptation to sin. No more losing hope. No more looking at other things that might be more impressive than the beauty and worth of Christ. No more. That's gone. 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 No more. Because the earth will be full. Full. Not halfway. Not partially. Full of the knowledge of the Lord God. as the waters cover the sea. If you've ever been out in the ocean, it doesn't take long to all you see is the ocean. 
And that is the picture that, that, that God is painting for us, that when he comes in his perfect reign, he's going to bring peace in such a way that the knowledge of him will be all over. You will never meet one person in his kingdom that will not know the beauty, worth, and excellency of our supreme Savior, Jesus Christ. That you cannot glory and exalt with that he has saved you by his grace. What a wonderful thing to look forward to. The scars of our ugly utopias of this world will be wiped away forever and ever. And it'll be under the flood of the healing peace of our King Jesus. Brothers and sisters, his kingdom is coming. Peace is coming. When we sing of peace in this season, we're singing of the peace that is to come. And as intended by Isaac Watts, we will sing joy to the world, not of the first advent, but joy to the world of the second advent, because the Lord has come. And so when we say Merry Christmas to one another, today and tomorrow, when you say it to one another today and you say it to your family and you say it to your friends, that should have deep meaning and blessing as you have heard today. We are saying that our king has come, and he has come out of the, as a shoot out of the stump of Jesse, and from that branch he has bore much fruit. He came humble, he came unimpressive to the world, but to those who are being saved, he is the glory of God. When you say Merry Christmas, you are saying that our King will rule with divine power through His Holy Spirit with wisdom and righteousness, and that only through Him will there be true justice, and that He will make all things right and good according to His righteousness. And when you say Merry Christmas, we are saying that our king will come, that he is coming, and when he does, he will bring perfect peace and harmony unlike anything else. Brothers and sisters, we have so much to look forward to in anticipation of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and so I say, come, Lord Jesus, come. But until then, beloved church, I wish you a merry Merry Christmas. And all of God's people say,